It happened in autumn, when the air begins to nip at the skin and the wind brings vigor to the lungs. When summer's oppression loosens its grip and rolling hills show orange and red trees grow bare. Autumn. All the world seems to begin drifting off into winter's deep sleep. A time of harvest and holy days enjoyed by earth-stained farmers in their earth-stained communities. Autumn. A companion towards the death of another year. If we could but live in her golden leaves till our twilight at last gives way to night. But all things must have a price, and for autumn we endure summer's fury and winter's bite. And what fury did summer bring to bear? The usually yellowing grass was fully desiccated by drought, something unknown to this region in two generations. The farmers were wringing their hands and biting their chapped lips as they watched their crops struggle and diminish to nothing. The year before, the Promenator had implemented a surplus initiative that, while restrictive, carried the region through the lean season. The farmers were now getting ready for a limited harvest and a long winter, and although it happened to all the farmers, it only mattered to the daughter. The young woman stood up from her work underneath the large oak tree on top of the hill, leaving its shade to stretch her legs and back. Atop this hill and to the south, a forest of giant mining towers could be seen. She could taste fresh dirt being churned, and even from this distance they could be heard. She could feel the dull thunder of their machination and imagined men grunting and laboring, fighting for the rich minerals under the surface. Always this confrontation of man and mineral led to blood. There must be payment. The earth would groan and rumble and crush and swallow men as payment for her virtue. The great machines would bend and splinter and shriek rending flesh from bone as payment for their industrious persistence. Always the ground would yield, broken to the yoke. This was the will of far away and faceless men. The promenader had said these men unified the territories with their hard work and that every province had men giving sweat and blood for the good of all. But every time the promenader's speeches would broadcast, her father dismissed them. From what she could tell, very little about the region was unified. Separate territories loosely held together by the all-consuming fear of lack. The mining brought people to the area. Her family were, and always had been, farmers. An influx of workers meant a higher demand for food. This was good for her family. The young woman did not know these men who worked and died. She did not mind the giant machines. 
The distant rumble of their digging was comforting, like a heart pumping deep within the earth, constantly working to turn the world on its axis. Many nights this sound rocked her to sleep, reassuring that tomorrow the sun would again rise. Far beyond the derricks lay the ocean. Having never seen it herself, the young woman relied on stories to imagine it. New Antioch, the town which her family lived on the outskirts of, shouldered the responsibility of feeding and outfitting the miners. This meant trading for non-local goods. Most were brought via airships that picked up their fare at the great shipping hubs near the sea, for sea transport was much preferred to the costly and dangerous overland routes. Crewmen from the great carriers would occasionally pass through town while on shore leave. They smelled of salt, sweat, and alcohol, and told the most wonderful stories. Whether or not they were true, she did not care, and many nights found her sitting by the fire in the tavern listening to these men recount great and terrible voyages. They spoke of water as a lover, fierce and beautiful. Her face was a deep blue that reached far beyond sight or reckoning, crashing on an endless shore of white sand. Dreams would often find her walking along these shores, waves lapping at her feet. She imagined getting in the water and floating on her back staring at a cloudless sky. The water would carry her to some distant land filled with things unknown and wonderful. Stirred from the daydream by a stiff breeze, she returned to her work. Boom. The treetops shook, causing birds to leave roost. The sound came too quickly and from the wrong direction to be a mining blast. She turned her head towards the emanation. It had come from the east. The east. The young woman knew little about what lay to the east. After the reconciliation, as the last great territorial war had come to be known, the world had been divided into multiple regions, somewhat similar to countries, but more resembling confederations of territories being parceled out to successful warlords and high bishops given the title Promenator. Much of the world was unsuitable for habitation due to the aggressive and regrettable use of powerful weapons. Limited resources had forced hastily drawn treaties and agreements corralling groups of people into strictly defined regions. Outside of these regions lay an uninhabited expanse, the East. What occurred in the East was gradually more and more obfuscated as time passed, and as these things often do, fact quickly gave way to hearsay. The local children had names for the phantasms that called the East home. Many knew this childhood fear. The young woman remembered these unseen terrors existing so close to her. Once again she arose from her work, stomach turning from some deep wrongness. She turned north towards New Antioch. All of the blood drained from her face. A black pillar of smoke rose from beyond the ridge, and her mind groped in the dark to find a connection to this sight. Nothing. Her legs pumped violently as she ran, each footfall marking a dark thought. The sound of breathing filled her ears as she saw her father and brother dead in her mind's eye. A monstrous roar mixed with sharp retorts dissipated her days. Gunfire. The young woman dropped into the long grass as four aircraft screamed through the sky over her. She lay motionless, waiting. The roar of the engines became distant and vague. It seemed to her what waves might sound like. She began to rise but stopped as a fire on her side called out. There was a red, warm patch on her shirt that outlined a hole. Calmly, she pulled up her top, revealing a jagged wound on her ribcage, just below her left breast. 
Less calmly, she felt her back to find a matching opening in her skin. As black edges began to form around her vision, the young woman ripped the bottom of her shirt and pressed the cloth tightly to the wound and fell forward into the grass. But the ground never rose to meet her. The sun was no longer in the sky when she awoke. Where am I? She thought. Looking around, she recognized the field. She remembered being under the tree. Daydreams of the ocean. The smoke. She quickly rose up, remembering the thick pillar that caused her to flee the hill. A shock of pain tore through the left side of her torso, causing her legs to buckle and head to spin. I have been shot. The airships raced across her mind the engines bellowing and their cannons releasing sure death upon her. This reality struggled to take root. She refused to accept it. Again she arose, this time slowly, looking towards the town. A soft glow illuminated the sky. It grew brighter as she moved painfully towards the last ridge between her and everything she knew. My father is alive, she said aloud. And my Benny, she quickly added. The words seemed to be spoken by another person. She already knew they were not true. Her pace quickened as much as her pain would allow, and the young woman began to climb the hill. A part of her wanted to turn around and never see what lay on the other side. This beckoning pulled at her legs. She slowed her ascent, but kept on forward. Her legs burned, in part from exhaustion, but mostly due to blood loss. Nearing the top, she fell to her knees and began to crawl. As she crawled, a bracing smell became apparent. It was familiar, but unwelcoming, and she could not recall why she knew it. Cresting the hill, she stood and viewed the town below. She collapsed and once again lost consciousness. The reason she fell from reality was simple. On the other side of the hill lay not the town she was accustomed to seeing. In the valley below the ridge was a great fire, consuming every piece of wood and brick and mortar that held the town together. Every shop and warehouse, every shed and home was bathed in flames. And no man stood to fight this blaze. No man stood because in the town square, there was a great pile. In the moment before she had collapsed, the young woman had connected the smell to a distant memory. When she was younger, there had been a great plague that had laid waste to much of the region's livestock. To combat this plague, all of the animals had been put into a large mound and burned. The rancor had been unbearable, and one had to retreat many miles to escape it. It was the same smell that now occupied the town. A briny smell replaced the rotten odor of charred flesh. In her hand, the young woman gripped wet sand, letting the clumps fall carelessly through her fingers. 
The top half of the sun floated on the horizon. Whether it was coming or going, she did not know. Neither did she remember why she now lay on the shore. Something did not seem right. This daydream had been played out countless times behind closed eyes. The waves and rocks were familiar and solid. The crystal sand she knew. Not wanting to grasp the loose thread, she sat content counting the sand, letting the blurry memory of the aircraft and fire become less concrete, replacing the gunfire with the sound of waves. The waves. The sound was different than in her daydreams. A soft patter arose where a dull roar had always lain. Her face felt cold, though the sun kissed it. Small impacts marred the unbroken sand. This is not right, she thought. The comforting grip this world held on her began to slip as an early morning rain massaged consciousness back into her mind. The sun was barely beginning to rise, outlining the adjacent hill. Disoriented, she stood. The sight of the smoldering heap of what remained of the town immediately brought her back to the present. She bent over and vomited. Wiping her mouth with her sleeve, she began climbing down the hill towards what remained. Nothing remained. She mentally went through a list of names and locations. The grain storehouse was now a brick wall supporting a large black hill of burnt wood and wheat. Behind that should have been the shipping depot with its loading docks and great moving cranes. A warped red iron skeleton stood over the hollowed out shells of trucks and small air carriers that had claimed to berth there the day before. Across from that, a large smoking crater replaced the proud outpost building. It had housed the local authority, a small policing and tax collection force that maintained the will of the promenader in the area. It was also home to one of the few long-distance communication relays in the territory. A rustle to her left caused her heart to stop. She slowly dropped to the ground beyond a pile of rocks. Heavy breathing. A dog covered in dried blood and ash crossed the main road from behind a ruined storage building. It stopped briefly to turn its nose in her direction and then ran away. The young woman got up and continued her inventory. After the warehouses lay the buildings where the crude material taken from the earth by the miners was processed and contained to be shipped away. These had fared better than most because of their steel construction. Inside, however, could be seen blackened walls and melted glass. The paint on the side of the buildings were completely gone. Many holes designated where the aim of light air cannons had fallen. Curiously mixed in with the larger holes were smaller, more closely grouped bullet marks. The distinction caused her to survey the area more carefully. Coming down the hill, she had vaguely seen dark patches of molested ground. The frequency of these patches increased as she came closer to the town proper. People must have tried to run away when the aircraft started firing, she realized. Few made it further than the warehouse district, judging by the, what was now obvious to her, patches of spilled blood. Leaving the processing plant, she came at last to the middle of town. The morning before, she had walked the very same route, first passing the town hall, quickly stopping in to greet Olivia, then by the library and inn, ending at the tavern for a bundle to take for lunch on the hill. Not one of these buildings was spared from the conflagration, but she hardly noticed. All she could focus on was the pile in front of the tavern. Here the smell was so strong that it caused her to become nauseous and dry heave, for nothing remained in her stomach to expel. Before her was a 15-foot slag heap of burned bodies. The oily buildup of melted fat created an expanding ring around the pile. 
Many of the bones retained sinew and charred meat, but no whole person could be discerned. The fire had disposed of skin and clothing, making identification impossible. To one side of the pile was a blood-stained patch of earth, much more blood than could have been let from one person. Used bullet casings littered the area. This had been a deliberate and orderly thing, not some haphazard spray of metal from aircraft. She imagined the men and women of the town lined up and shot, one by one, and then added to the growing heap. She wished a bullet had been saved for her. side of the town, towards the farms, the destruction was less severe. Some of the tenement buildings were only partially burned. One of these buildings still kept its red wooden doors. The young woman opened the door and peered inside. Nothing could be heard, and the thick ash that was still falling from the sky made the gloomy hallway seem darker. She methodically walked the building's three floors, checking every room. She did not know what she expected to find. The pile in front of the tavern left little room for survivors. Every so often she would come upon a dark red spot, usually around a bullet hole in the wall or the floor. Smears could be seen where the bodies had been dragged to the pyre. Most of the rooms were ransacked, but a few showed an absence of interest. On the third floor, the intruders must have been rushed, for little evidence of molestation could be seen. An open drawer here, or a misplaced chair, were all that spoke of violence. In one room, however, a pair of bloodied undergarments betrayed the notion that its inhabitants had been shown mercy. Having seen enough, the woman quickly left the building. The caution with which she had used carefully moving through the town was cast aside as she ran towards her family settlement. She did not get far before the wound in her side wrenched her to the ground. She realized that she had not eaten for at least a day and was barely able to stand. The settlement lay about three miles outside of town. Not such a long walk, but it seemed an eternity to her. She had to stop frequently to prevent fainting. Soon she came to the first of the farmhouses. It had belonged to a large man named Anthwin. He had three sons and a wife. Five corpses lay on the front porch, all with varying head wounds. The woman lay next to the three sons. Anthwin was away from the others. She could not clearly see his face because a large portion of it was missing. No, not missing. It lay in pieces on the front step of the porch. He had been shot first, she thought, or last. The thought would have sickened her, but she was too tired to expend the energy. Similar scenes were found at each of the houses leading up to hers. Apparently, these executioners were not as concerned about the disposal of bodies as in the town. She stopped when she saw the outline of her roof. The simple A-frame house, not so dissimilar from all of the farmhouses in the area, lay beyond a field of wheat. The stalks seemed to pull at her arms and legs, pleading with her to stop. Tall and silent, they wished for her never to leave. 
Then the weed ended, and the house stood alone in the clearing. Letting her eyes fall on the two bodies, she slowly moved forward. Her father was wearing a blue cotton shirt and worn brown boots. Mud caked the bottom of his pant legs. He must have been coming in from the day's work. His face looked calm. A small red hole ringed with black burns on his temple told of where the gun had been pressed to his head. Her brother, only two years younger than her, lay next to him. She could not look upon his face, however. It was bruised and broken, a large gash on his cheek showing the white of teeth and bone. His left eye was a pulpy mess of fluid and torn skin. There was no gunshot wound to be found on him. He had been beaten to death. She walked onto the porch and through the open door. Lines of sunlight bred through the windows, but brought no light into the house. It seemed as if someone removed all of the color from the walls and cloth and trappings filling her home. A great swell rose from her belly and overwhelmed her. The young woman doubled over and screamed something fierce. No man understands that pain which is his own, but she was no man. Never had anything been more clear. Her love had been hollowed out. Her face, so beautiful, would never again be anything but alone. Alone. A word that had never even passed her lips. Her eyes burned red. She spat out the blood from her mouth and stood. Retrieving a bowl of water and some wash rags from the sink, she methodically set about cleaning her brother's face, closing the eye that was still intact and ripping a small patch of cloth to cover the other. She moved to her father and tended to his wound. Then the young woman went around to the back of the house and grabbed a shovel from the shed and began digging graves. Suffering from exhaustion and hunger, this proved to be an incredible task. But she would be damned before she let what remained of her family become food for filthy carrion. She dragged her brother and her father around to their graves and carefully put them in the ground, kissing them before she covered the holes. She placed crude wooden markers at the heads of both graves. Anthony, my father. Benny, my brother. The young woman had also dug a third grave. At the head of this one, she had simply written, Ileana. She had retrieved her father's army pistol that he had kept after his service and had hid in the floorboards under the stove. Laying down in her grave, she closed her eyes and placed the gun to her head and pulled the trigger. Thank you.